What a glorious Lord's Day it has been. Now I have the great privilege to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word. And I invite you to open it to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 11 through 14 in Titus chapter 2. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. As you stand, do so knowing that in the Scripture, and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Join me in prayer. O Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, and Redeemer. Yours is the only kingdom that knows no end. And Lord, we come before You this morning praying that You would meet us in Your Word. We thank You for the Word that is living and active. And even as we heard this morning in the baptistry, able to pierce us with the truth. And we pray that that would be the case this very morning. Lord, we thank You that the Scripture is not only a book that we read, it's one that reads us, that exposes us. And for those who come with humble hearts, through faith in Christ, changes us. Changes us for Your glory and our good. And Lord, as we set our mind on the birth of Christ, Lord, expand our capacity for awe and wonder. For that's what thinking upon this truth demands. Oh Lord, the one that terrified Herod, who wore a diaper. The promise where a manger was a throne. The most unlikely of people streaming in following this star that had been promised. And O Lord, You speak from the heavens to declare that this indeed is good news of great joy. O Lord, expand our capacity for awe and wonder. Help us to know better what it means to say the glory of God. And it's in Your name and in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes you go to open a Christmas present. Well, maybe not you. Maybe this is just me, but 
but you think you're getting one thing. And then you open that present, and it's something else. And while you pretend to be excited about it, you're thinking sort of, thanks, I think. What is, I didn't, what, this? That, that's how I picture Titus. Titus, this true son in the faith to the Apostle Paul. This Greek Christian whom Paul summons to be a part of this ordering of the churches in light of the Gospel. It's some very practical work for Titus to be involved in serving the churches. And as a true son in the faith, he has to be excited to hear about that. And then he hears the news that it's on the Isle of Crete. And if they would have been southern, somebody would have said, bless your heart. The Isle of Crete, off the coast of Greece. Titus chapter 1 verse 12 And the first part of verse 13. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you expect Paul here to say, well, I mean, that's what's said, but that's not true. And instead, Paul says, this testimony is true. And, and they, they, they're mired in all these notions about Greek gods, and there are people from all over in these ports. It, it is a very difficult work. And much of what Paul is calling Titus to do on the Isle of Crete is very practical stuff. In chapter 1, he says one of the things that you need to do is to, to make sure that elders are appointed in all of the churches on the Isle of Crete. And he gives certain qualifications that those elders are to have. And one of the things he reminds him that he's going to have to do is immediately those elders are going to have to confront the false teaching that is rising up. There is the circumcision party that would take back in a direction of, of law-keeping, and, and there are all these other problems, and they're going to have to confront those problems. And so you be involved in helping them choose elders that are faithful. In chapter 2, he begins by saying, and, and once that takes place, we need to make sure that the older men need to understand their role in the context of the church. And we need to make sure that the older women do as well. And, and they are to be involved in, in discipling the younger women. You see how practical this stuff is? The, the, this is what needs to go on. And he, he even has a word for those who are in the unfortunate situation of being, being bond servants and, and how in the midst of that situation they can attempt to glorify God. Chapter 2 is about those relationships that we have. And and he says all of this needs to be rooted in sound doctrine. But there is one particular doctrine that he keeps pointing to in the midst of all of these practical instructions. Paul provides theological grounding for all he says. Theological reasoning and motivation. And that doctrine is the Incarnation. He keeps saying, He appeared. I'm telling you this because He appeared. You might think this work is hard and difficult. And you might not be overjoyed that you're going to one of the hard places, but remember, He appeared. And in fact, He goes from the practical instruction to this theological assertion 
without any transition. It's like he goes, okay, you need to do this, this, and this, but don't forget why. Don't forget what is to motivate you. Don't forget what has led to this calling. He appeared. You know, I just can't help but to think that reminding myself over and over throughout the day, He appeared. Could transform my thinking as well. Could transform the way I see all of those practical things that I've got to do. Why do we do what we do? Why does Paul at times write these letters from prison? He appeared. He, he keeps pointing Titus in that direction. These verses are arguably the most concise explanation of gospel-centered living in the entire Bible here in the middle of chapter 2 in Titus. Commentator William Barclay said about Titus 2, There are few passages in the New Testament which set forth the moral power of the incarnation as vividly as this. The moral power of the incarnation. The transformative moral power of it. There's a fall into sin and one man disobeyed. But the Bible had a promise that there would be another man who came. And there he was. Born of the Virgin Mary. In a diaper. And the heavens declared who he was. Shepherds declared who he was. Wise men or magi declared who he was. He appeared. You see, it changes everything. Suddenly in Titus 2, after he gives the instructions about older men and older women and younger women and bond service, suddenly, no transitional phrase, he says in verse 11, grace has appeared. Look with me at Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, Titus 2.10, he ended like this. So that, here's the purpose, the purpose of all these ordering of things, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They, they may put it on. That it may be obvious that they are adorning their lives with the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, that it might be clear and attractive and beautiful that their lives are transformed by the doctrine of God our Savior. But that also means this. That means there's a way to live your life that maligns the doctrine of God our Savior. He says, oh, here's the purpose, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They might beautify themselves with it by living it out. And then he exclaims, for the grace of God has appeared. The, the word appeared means it has been made visible. 
There in the incarnation of Christ, in the infleshing of God the Son, as, as the, the, the God the Son takes on human flesh, fully God, fully man, we see the grace of God that is made visible. The promise of Genesis 3.15 that, that in response to sin, that there would be a seed born of woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. There, made visible. It is the grace of God made visible. This particular word appeared is used in Luke chapter 1, verse 79. Zechariah's song. And it's translated light. And it's referring to the birth of Christ. There is the light. There is what is made visible. For the grace of God has appeared. And He came bringing salvation. And He does it for all people. All people from all walks of life. We see throughout the New Testament, Jews and Gentiles here in Titus, the issue is the circumcised and the uncircumcised. For all people in all backgrounds, in all places, in all walks of life, in all situations, grace has appeared. Bringing salvation. Now, Grace is a word we use a lot, but we don't think about enough. We do that a lot. When we get a real familiarity with something, we get little tidy thoughts about it. And we don't think we need to think upon it. The, the truth is, grace is far more amazing than most of us allow ourselves to realize. What is grace? Well, it's the unmerited favor of God, but it's more than that. It's the unmerited favor of God in spite of what we deserve. In spite of it. And it's also that favor of God shown to those who deserve the opposite. And it's transformative. Now, the unmerited favor of God in spite of what we deserve. In spite of our demerit. And it's that favor shown to people who deserve the exact opposite. And it's that favor that changes those people. You know, there's the old acronym that certainly has a lot of value that says that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That is certainly a helpful starting point in your thinking. I was having a conversation with Judy not too long ago. She was talking about uh, having a conversation with somebody about parenting in a situation, and they're talking about how, how to deal with it. And I've had this conversation with people countless times as well. And somebody had advised that person to respond to this, this sinful behavior in the child's life, and, and they said, yeah, just give them grace. And what they mean, whenever anybody says that to me, I'm saying, how do you define grace? Because often it's look the other way. Act like it didn't happen. Just be permissive and lenient. That's not grace, brothers and sisters. God is not unjust. God's grace for us is not that He looks down at us at guilty sinners and just says, 
Ah, I'm just going to act like it didn't happen. You go free. Grace demands a bloody cross. God never compromises His justice. Grace is not permissiveness. Grace is not just undue leniency. In, in parenting, you can't exemplify grace in exactly the way God does, and that'll be clear in a moment, but you can reflect it. You can be gracious. And so as you, you show them the difference between sin and, and righteousness, and, and, and you point them to Christ, the only one that can forgive their sins, and no matter what they do, you're always there on the other side of discipline to embrace them, for God disciplines those whom He loves. And when we do that, when our child's disobedience is not a reason for us to cast them off, but we draw them ever the more closer, we certainly are being gracious and reflecting and pointing them to the reality of grace. But consider this. Man shows up at your house. He's obviously very needy. He knocks on your door and he says, I will mow your grass if you will feed me a meal. And you say, forget about the grass, come in and I'll feed you a meal. Is that grace? Well, it's gracious. But it doesn't encapsulate grace as we understand it biblically. Alright, let's, let's advance it on a little bit. The same guy comes. Knocks on the door, says, I'll cut your grass if you'll feed me a meal. And you know, this is the guy that a few weeks ago robbed your house. And you say, don't worry about cutting the grass. Come on in. I'll fix you the meal. Well, that gets a little closer to what we point to when we say the grace of God. It is really gracious. But it's not all the way there. Why? Because when we say the grace of God, what we're talking about is offending the one who made us. Offending the one who has the authority to judge us. You see, if you call the police on that person, then there's going to be an investigation and somebody else is going to decide how to judge what that person has done and whether they're guilty or innocent. No, with God, He is the Creator and He is the Judge. He is the one we have offended. The law is not distant from Him. It is a reflection of Him. So the very one we offended who made us, who created us, who gave us His law, whom we have sinned against, that one says to us, Your sins are forgiven. Not meaning I'm going to act like you didn't do them. I sent my son. He bore my wrath. That you might be forgiven. And we are declared righteous in Christ. Justified. But it doesn't stop there. The New Testament says that the judge who can declare us justified in Christ steps down from the bench, takes us home, opens his hands, and says, you are my adopted child. Everything I have is yours. 
You see, we can be gracious. We can point to that kind of grace, but we can only approximate it. Because only the one who is perfect and infinitely holy and has been sinned against, who has made a way, can invite us in. And so when we look at that one who was born and say, the grace of God has appeared, it changes everything, bringing salvation for all people. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The infinite became an infant. The Son of God became a man that we might become sons of God. The grace of God has appeared. You see, we set our mind on thinking upon the magnitude of this grace. And it changes everything. The grace has appeared. But then we're startled by the next section in verses 12 through 13. Because the next thing he says is that grace trains us. That sounds odd to us. Training us in verse 12. The word's really hard to translate it. It means instructing us, teaching us. Might be best translated disciplining us. It's most often used for parents training their children. Ephesians 6.4 Bring them up or train them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Grace trains us. It instructs us. It teaches us. It disciplines us. It educates us. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Discipline of Grace. One of the chapters, chapter 5, is titled Disciplined by Grace. He says this, The title of the chapter may seem to some people like an oxymoron. Discipline to them suggests restraint and legalism and rules and regulations and a God who frowns on anyone who has fun. Grace, on the other hand, seems to mean freedom from any rules, spontaneous and unstructured living, and most of all, a God who loves us unconditionally regardless of our sinful behavior. But such thinking reflects a misunderstanding of both grace and discipline. The very same grace that brings salvation also trains us to live lives that are pleasing to God. All God's disciplinary processes are grounded in His grace. His unmerited and unconditional favor toward us. We tend to equate discipline with rules and performance standards. God with His children equates it with loving care of our souls. What does it mean to be trained by grace? Disciplined by grace and instructed by grace. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not only, we, we, we are not saved by grace and then sanctified by law keeping. We are not saved by grace and then sanctified by our performance. And I find people struggle with this pervasively in Christianity. Oh yeah, we would speak of the saving grace of God, the God, God that delivered us in spite of our sins. But when we talk about growing in our faith, we always tend to click on a performance sort of mentality. And, and I can't really be God's child because I'm not doing this. I feel forsaken 
because I am a person who struggles in this way or that way. But understand, we are not only saved by grace, we are sanctified by grace. If we are not saved by grace, we are not saved. If we are not sanctified by grace, we are not sanctified. The obedience that we render to God is the obedience of faith. Faith came to us as a gift of God, the grace of God. It's not something we worked up. The best that we could ever do falls short. We are sanctified by grace, brothers and sisters. And it is the love of God that not only saves us, but refuses to leave us where we are. The way Paul structures everything, it's always the gospel indicative. That, that's a fancy way of saying the statement of the truth of the gospel. First, foundational. And then gospel imperatives or gospel commands. You can never reverse the order. You can't obey a list of gospel commands so you can be accepted by the gospel. The only way for you to live out gospel commands is that you have been saved by the gospel. The salvation is secure. It is sure. It is absolute. As much as Christ is risen from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father pleading on your behalf, you are His. So the commands are given not for you to earn your way to God. The commands are given so you might live in a way of fullness and no real freedom that comes from walking in the ways of God. Luther said we are saved saved by faith alone, but it's a faith that is never alone. Foundational to all is the forgiveness of sins and acceptance by God as His children. It's through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. Deliverance from sin and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit comes to us in Christ. It is only through union with Christ. And God's teaching, instructing, and training, and disciplining us are demonstrations of His love and acceptance. He disciplines us because we are His. He does it as a means of His love and acceptance. It's a way of drawing us closer in our experience, not pushing us away. Absolutely. In Christ, we are always loved and never condemned. And we are loved so much that we are being changed by that love. First thing he says is this grace trains us to say no. Look at the first part of chapter chapter 2, verse 12. Training us to renounce, it's decisive. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, training us to renounce all of the habits that we had always lived according to apart from Christ. When he says ungodliness here, we often associate ungodliness with wickedness, rebellion, cruelty, and evil acts. And that's all true, but that's not all. In the broadest sense, ungodliness is just simply disregarding God. Living as if God does not matter. Living without God in view. Not taking Him into account. 
The Proverbs would say, living without the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and instruction. Not fearing the Lord, not reverencing the Lord. It doesn't mean you're actively doing rebellious things in the world. It means that you live with a disregard for God, therefore you are ungodly. You are not driven and motivated and animated by God. You may have a place for Him over here on the shelf and you pull it out occasionally when you realize that you have needs, but you don't live with an awareness of God. Here's the truth. Somebody can be moral, charitable, and kind and be ungodly. Don't you see that? The fact that we refuse to believe that is one of Satan's greatest weapons that we place in his hand. We think Christianity is morality. Good people who do good things. And the Bible say, bad people who've done bad things and still struggle with bad things. But a good Savior, a perfect Savior, an all-sufficient Savior, an atoning Savior, an indwelling Spirit, a Father who sets His affection on His Son, therefore He sets His affection on those who are in the Son. There are plenty of people in the world who are kind and charitable and moral, but disregard God. That is to be ungodly, and we are to renounce ungodliness. Everything we do, we're to think about God and worldly passions. That Worldly passions is a particular Greek word here where you take the word desire, passion, and you add an intensifier in front of it, epi. And so the word is over-desiring, over-passions. That's the way we're driven because we're looking to satisfy our soul. So we look at possessions and say, that'll do it. We look at prestige and say, that'll do it. We look at power and say, that'll do it. We look at pleasures and say, that'll do it. But none of it will do it. We must renounce worldly passions. These are the habits of our life apart from Christ. That's why Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, to start the, symbolically the Protestant Reformation, the first thesis was this. When our Lord Jesus said repent, he meant the whole of the Christian life is repentance. We spend the rest of this life, in this present age, which it talks about here, turning from ungodliness and worldly passions. But grace not only trains us to say no, grace trains us to say yes. Look as it continues. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, saying yes means that we reckon with the truth of the gospel. Just think about what it means for how you see the world if you actually believe He appeared. If you actually believe that in a manger, in a diaper, there was God the Son. Fully God and fully man. What's the implication of that? How can we think that living is anything but an act of humility, humbling, humility? If God took on flesh for us, how can we be prideful 
How can we talk about what we deserve and think that somehow we're entitled to this, that, or the other? If we follow Him, there's nothing that would glorify Him that is too low for us to be involved in and do. God in a diaper? And why was He in that diaper? Because He was going to die, but He was perfect. So self-sacrifice makes sense. The complete transition. Ungodliness, worldly passions. Look at that manger. Humble self-sacrifice. A life of humility makes perfect sense. Self-sacrifice makes perfect sense. These are the yes. These are the put-ons that respond to the put-offs ungodliness and worldly passions. These are the new habits. Notice what he says. And to live self-controlled. In other words, we don't live for our own immediate desires. We don't over-desire these things because we have them in the proper place. Delayed gratification makes sense. After all, Christ came and suffered and died. But He will not return again until some time later. Delayed gratification makes perfect sense. Every bit of everything is not born in every moment. So when we don't get our way, we're tied up in knots and and this is not going. No, there is a humility and a sober mindedness that comes over our lives. Personal restraint makes sense because now we live by a greater affection. We've been liberated from the bondage of temporal affections, trying to do the work that only God can do. Upright, just and right actions toward others. Notice, self-control, upright, living with just and right actions toward others, and godly lives. Regard for God, fearing Him, reverencing Him, trusting Him, always accounting for Him. Whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do to the glory of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do do, Do you see it? Self, others, God. Grace trains us to say yes. In this present age, trained by grace for the here and now, 2 Peter 3.18 says we are to grow in grace. This is what this is talking about. He takes us in this discussion from the past. He appeared to the present. Grace is training us. And He tells us that we are a people who always live with our eye to the future. Verse 13, grace trains us to hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory. There's that word appearing again. Another advent is coming. We are still a waiting people. The appearing of the glory. The light, the majesty, the the, the weight, the wonder of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is coming again. We are to be a people who are awaiting and hoping. Uh, Not hoping in the sense of uh, wishful thinking, the way we use that word today, but living based on promises of a God who has kept every promise. You see, when you say, when there's that promise in the beginning of the Bible, and that child is born, and the heavens themselves, and and the, the foreign powers say, oh, I know who that is, and the people come and worship, and you say, He appeared! You're just as much saying we are awaiting His appearing. 
if God the Son was in that manger, you can guarantee that he was crucified, dead, and buried, raised, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and then he is appearing again in glory. He is appearing again with glory. You see, the picture here is that that grace saves us from the penalty of sin. But grace also saves us from the power of sin. And one day, grace will save us from the very presence of sin. And so we are a people who await that second advent. And we do it with hope. And therefore, that casts a shadow on the way we would, would take things in the here and now and, and blow them up as, as everything is invested there. No, everything is invested there. He will appear. I love Calvin here. Calvin says, Paul calls God great because His greatness, which people who are dazzled by the vanity of the world do not see, will be seen fully on the last day. The allurement of the world, so long as it shines brightly in our eyes, hides God's glory. As if it were buried in darkness. But through His coming, Christ will disperse all the world's empty show so that nothing will any longer obscure the brightness of His glory and detract from His greatness. Oh, we are a people waiting for our blessed hope. But finally, grace transforms us. Look at verse 14. Who gave Himself for us. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 13, is the one who gave Himself for what? For us. He came to die. He redeemed us, meaning He purchased us by His blood. Notice, from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself. So He purchased us to purify us. He purchased us by sovereign grace, by His shed blood. And He purifies us by sovereign grace. And then it says, a people for His own possession. Own there is a word that when you translate the word into Hebrew, it means private property. It means peculiar. The only people that are His possession in this way. So, He purchased us to purify us to be His own peculiar people. And what makes us peculiar? He graced us. The only people walking the face of the earth who understand what grace really means and how amazing it is. And therefore, there are all kinds of priorities that don't make sense outside of Christ. But we are in Christ. I love the thought that we are a peculiar people. Purified by His grace. And a people who are purchased by His blood. Now notice the last phrase. Who are zealous for good works? Who are zealous for good works? Get the language there. Not who work themselves up to be zealous for good works, but who are are zealous for good works. Who have been changed. Grace has transformed us. Zealous means who are deeply committed to. Passionate for good works. 
Now, I know this. I know that anybody who thinks good works are a ladder to earn salvation are anything but passionate about it. You're never sure if you've climbed high enough. It leads not to zealousness. It leads to a sense of discontentment. A sense of despair even. How do I know I climb high enough? But the gospel comes in, and it destroys that. There's a gospel wrecking ball on the idea that you and I can save ourselves by good works. And now good works are not something that stand over us and declare us guilty, but good works are what we declare because we are free. You are far more likely to delight in doing good things to glorify God if you know that they are not the way you're trying to earn your favor toward God. You see... Apart from that, you're always a bit self-protecting. And in fact, when you see good works as trying to climb to God, you're kind of put out if you think somebody's climbed a little bit higher than you. You kind of want to kick their ladder. So you stay higher. But when the ladder is completely what God has done and come to us, then you want as many people to know that as possible. You see... He makes us zealous for good works. Ephesians 2. Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because we are freed from law keeping as a means to salvation, we indeed are people who can say, I love good works. And when we fail, we are forgiven. Liberated people. You see, Christmas saves us from legalism, it's beautiful. Saved from legalism, saved from performance, saved from the despair that comes with that kind of thinking. It liberates us from legalism. This grace that appeared, that trains us, it often leaves us a bit perplexed. Often as God trains us and leads us and instructs us and takes us to places, it often leads us with thanks, I think. Right? We don't always know what's going on. We don't always know why He's taking us down the path that we're going down. We're a little bit uncertain about that, but we're not uncertain about Him. You know, I can't help but to think about Pastor Nate's story about a Christmas present. Weirdo of all weirdos, he was hoping in that box was a carburetor. That's the weirdest excitement about a Christmas present I have ever heard. And he opens the box, and instead of a carburetor, it's a guitar. Oh, man. Isn't that weird? But that was him. And he's thinking... Thanks, I think. Puts that in the room. His dad dies. Takes it out. Starts playing it. And we are blessed by it every single Lord's Day. Could you imagine Pastor Nate without a guitar? Thanks, I think. 
there comes to a point, whether it's in glory or sometime now, where we can erase the I think. And we just say, thanks. He transforms us. We start desiring different things. You see, this is what grace does. It's not enough to say that grace transforms us to live better than I deserve. Grace transforms us to live better than I could have ever imagined. And so when you and I are in those moments and we have the thanks I think moment, there ought to be a little glimmer in the eye. How is this going to turn out in God's plan? 2 Corinthians 9.15 There won't be any thanks about it. There will be a people who declare forever and ever, thanks be to God for His indescribable and expressible gift. Merry Christmas indeed, now and forever. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, thank You for Your perfect and precious Word. Thank You for Your liberating truth. Thank You that grace has appeared. Thank You that grace trains us. Thank You that grace transforms us. But I pray this morning for anyone here who is not sure where they stand before You. They've not abandoned themselves. Believing, trusting that the One who was born was born to die, was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised, and He paid the penalty for the sins of those who would believe in Him. And I pray that this would be the day that they would cry out and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, Lord. I pray that that would be true today of many here. But Lord, help us to see this pattern that You've called us to to live our lives. Not a pattern of performance or earning in Your sight, but a pattern of walking out grace, knowing that we are Your child. Oh Lord, help us to embrace it. Help us to renounce not only ungodliness and worldly passions, but help us to renounce legalism. Help us to live in the freedom of the gospel that loves us too much to leave us the same. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.